Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're winding down this study that we've been in the entire uh, fall semester. And the theme of this series is called The Surprising Power of Grace. And the particular focus this morning is the surprising power of the way. Since earliest days after the resurrection, followers of Christ were called people of the way. And after Acts chapter 24, around 58 AD, Paul appears before the governor of Judea, whose name is Felix. And Paul testifies with these words, that I confess that according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers. Now, we know that Jesus himself talked about the way. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, Jesus isn't saying that few people act good enough to actually make the way. That's that's not what he's saying. How do we know that's not what he's saying? Because in another place, in John 14, he also talks about the way, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the gate that is narrow and the way that is hard is the way who is Jesus. And it's hard because it's so humbling to human pride to realize that we have nothing to offer God but our helplessness and our sin. And that's why the way is hard. We are people of the way. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and life. And at John chapter 8, Jesus said that the truth will set you free. So the way of Jesus is the way of truth, is the way of freedom. In March of 1775, in the early days of our country, a 39-year-old attorney named Patrick Henry addressed the Virginia Convention. He was passionate about liberty, about freedom. And he spoke these words. If we wish to be free, we must fight. It is vain to minimize this matter. Other gentlemen might be crying, no, peace, peace. But there is no peace. The war has actually begun. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? Is life so dear to us as to be purchased at the price of chains and of slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. It was a different context than what Paul writes about in Galatians. But Paul, when he wrote Galatians in 48 AD, was just about the same age as Patrick Henry. And he writes saying that we must fight for freedom. 
I don't know what course others will take. But as for me, Paul says, give me liberty in Christ or give me death. Give me liberty, not with guns and bullets, but with seeking to be found in Christ, not with a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We are to seek with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to stand and walk and run in that liberty. Now, all through Galatians, Paul has been contrasting two ways to live, two approaches to God. One is called the way of slavery to the law. It's looking at circumcision as committing you to a Jewish lifestyle. And false teachers that came into Galatia, these churches, said, Jesus was, in fact, Messiah. He did die for your sins. He is the chosen one. But you can only participate in those blessings that Christ purchased if you follow a Jewish lifestyle. In other words, it's Jesus plus your performance that leads to salvation. But Paul also talks about another heresy besides legalism, which is what I just described. He talks about a heresy called nomism. Nomism from the Greek word namos, and it means a legal-centered Christian life. In other words, you're trusting Christ for salvation. That's settled. You're going to heaven because you know Christ died for your sins. But nomism is thinking that you need to maintain God's favor. You need to merit God's smile. You need to continue earning God's acceptance by living, again, a Jewish lifestyle or thinking that your achievement of obedience through the commands is what is going to cause God to be favorably disposed to you. And Paul says no to legalism and no to nomism. And then in the flow of the argument, Paul talks in Galatians 4 that Chad Walker preached on last week. He talks about Abraham and Sarah. And I explained a little bit of this for the baptism. God promised Abraham that God would bless him. And that through that blessing of the promise, Abraham would become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The problem was Sarah was barren. They were both incredibly old, way past childbearing age. But God promised that Abraham would be a blessing. In other words, through Abraham's heir, the nations would be blessed. Who is Abraham's heir? Well, immediately it was Isaac, but in the long run, it was Jesus. So the way of the promise to Abraham by God's power was going to bring about the heir, who is Christ, who is the way of salvation, who is the way of freedom from sin and its penalty, freedom from guilt and condemnation, and even progressive freedom from the power of sin. However, there was a problem, 
and Paul reveals it in Galatians 4. He says that Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting for the promise. And so they thought, rationalized, justified to themselves, maybe we're supposed to be involved in our part of human achievement, and we are, to, we are supposed to actually bring about the promise by Abraham not having a, a child through Sarah, because that's impossible. Maybe we're supposed to use Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and that will be the way that we get the heir. And Paul says the only thing that did was produce children of slavery. The child that came about through natural relations with Hagar, when Abraham and Sarah left the way of the gospel and chose the way of human achievement, it just produced slave children. And now Paul says Israel is in slavery with her children. In other words, Israel missed the whole point of circumcision. What was to point away from itself and away from human achievement became the way of human achievement. And so Paul then writes Galatians 5, flowing out of that illustration of Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. And he calls us, in light of what he just said about the story of Abraham and Sarah, we are to stand firm and wait for the promises of God day by day, week by week, month by month. We trust that Christ, in fact, saved us. We trust that every day He is saving us more and more from the power of sin in our lives. And we wait for the day when Christ returns and we will be free not only from the penalty and the power, but we will be free forever from the presence of sin. And Paul says we experience progressive transformation as we continue to stand, walk, and run in the freedom of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lengthy introduction, but that's Galatians. Okay, you just got Galatians in, how'd I do, 10 minutes. Let's all stand and hear the, the wonder of God's Word as we go from Galatians 4 into Galatians 5. Can you tell I get excited about this stuff? People say, why is he yelling all the time? I, I'm not yelling. I'm just really excited. Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul's passionate too. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. This is God's Word. He gave it just because He loves us, and He wants us to learn how to stand, walk, and run in freedom. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for this book that is so relevant to our day, to our age, to the church. God, we pray. Open our ears, move in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, the fact is, every one of us are tempted like Abraham and Sarah. Every one of us are tempted to leave the way of the promise, the way of the gospel, the way of grace, the way of the supernatural, and turn to our own human achievement as the basis of our relationship with God. And so Paul says, let's stand, walk, and run in the freedom we have in Christ. First of all, stand in the way of freedom in Christ. Look at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Again, this is the application of Galatians 4 and the story of Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. See, the way of the promise was the way of human helplessness. you got to, you got to understand that about the, the Sarah Abraham illustration. The way of the promise is the way of human helplessness. That's the offense of the cross that Paul talks about that we just read about. The offense of the cross is that it humbles and breaks human pride. The only thing we have to offer, the only thing we bring to the table when it comes to our salvation is our sin. That's it. No human achievement. No human achievement allowed. Only an alien, passive righteousness that comes from God and is through Jesus Christ. Abraham, the man of faith, didn't stand all the time in the way of faith. And guess what? Neither do we. Neither do I. I am constantly tempted to shift my confidence from Christ to my own achievement. Perhaps you do too. See, Paul's point is that we need to be born supernaturally just like Abraham's heir needed to be born supernaturally. And we too easily shift from hope in the supernatural promises of grace to the way of human achievement. Look, how many times are you discouraged because you just don't think you've measured up? That's the whole point of standing in the way of freedom in Christ. Your guilt and shame has been removed. Now, we're going to talk about this 
today and next week. Don't think for a minute that that means it doesn't matter how you live. But how you get there is the key as to whether you're walking in freedom in Christ or whether you're walking in the way of human achievement. The whole idea where Paul says Christ set us free, men and women, what does that assume? If Christ set us free, it assumes we were slaves. What were we slaves to? We were slaves to the mentality of human achievement. We were slaves to the mentality that if we are going to have God love us and bless us, it's all up to us getting it right. And Paul says, no, it's about Christ getting it right for us. And we are no longer slaves to legalism. We are no longer slaves to performance. Keep standing firm, therefore. You see, the false teachers understood the place of the law. They saw the law as a ladder by which we climb up in our own performance and achievement into the lap of God's favor and blessing. And Paul says, no. The law is not a ladder by which you climb up into God's favor. The law is a mirror to expose our sin and failure and helplessness and hopelessness. And Paul goes on to say, if you're hoping in a way of legal achievement, you are hopeless. Look at what Paul says about standing in the way of achievement. First, in verse 2, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's true if you're a person who doesn't know Christ and you're trying to earn heaven by your own works. And it's true of a Christian who, yes, the value of Christ is going to get you to heaven. But the value of Christ in your daily moment-by-moment life, he's going to be of no advantage to you. In other words, you're going to constantly, constantly be looking at your own performance to gauge whether God is frowning upon you, angry at you, or smiling upon you. But look what Paul says in verse 3. You'll be obligated to keep the whole law. I'm here to tell you, as someone who loves you, if you leave the way of standing in the freedom in Christ for a way of human achievement... You have to obey every command all the time, or in your paradigm, God is always doing this to you. Because the only person who ever obeyed the law was Jesus. And if you're a Christian and you put yourself back under the law, in other words, God does do this if you blow it, unless you completely measure up, you don't have God's smile, then Paul is saying, then you never had God's smile. Because you're obligated to keep the entire law in your paradigm. And James says, if you stumble at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So in other words, if you want to stand in the way of human achievement for the Christian life, no mism, then you have to love God perfectly every second of every day and you need to love your neighbor perfectly every second of every day. And by the way, your neighbor is your enemy. So you got to love your enemy perfectly every moment of every day. Now do you still want to stand in that way of human achievement? That's Paul's point. He's driving us to despair of self. 
so that we would hope in the promise. We would stand in freedom. Then he says, secondly, in verse 4, you were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. See, the false teachers thought and taught Jesus as Messiah, but the way you participate in the benefits of Christ is by practicing a law-centered life and your performance. So your obedience connected you to the benefits of Christ. Paul says not only is that not true, but if you leave standing in the way of freedom for the way of human achievement, it actually severs you from experiencing the benefits of Christ. And then thirdly, in verse 4, Paul says you've fallen away from grace. What's grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. When we choose a legal lifestyle, a legal paradigm, when we think that the only way we maintain God's smile is through our perfect obedience, then we're fallen from grace. It's like, why did Christ even come? And I can give you the answer many Christians give. Well, Christ came to bring me to heaven. Folks, if that's all you've ever heard, I am so sad for you. Jesus Christ didn't really come to bring people to heaven and then wait for us to work it all out till we get there. Jesus came to bring us to heaven and through his obedience and death for us to experience the unconditional love of God every moment of every day and to experience the supernatural transforming power that comes through union with the resurrected Christ. Keep standing in the freedom of Christ. I'm, uh, I'm so excited, not just about this text. In a couple weeks, I'm going to Las Vegas. Now, I can't stand Las Vegas. But I'm excited because I'm going to the sphere in Las Vegas. Some of you are like, so what? At the sphere in Las Vegas, this $2.6 billion venue that has all kinds of screens, almost 360 degrees, Bono and U2 are playing. Many of you know I'm a U2 freak. Now, there, there are some people who just think there's no way Bono can be a Christian. I mean, he uses colorful language at times. Um, he's done some stupid stuff. He's politically liberal. I mean, how can someone like that be a Christian, some people say. Well, first of all, not that you're Christian by this, but he's been married to the same woman for over 41 years. But secondly, we actually have his own words about his hope in Christ. He was interviewed some time back, and this is what he said in part at that interview as he confesses Christ as his Savior and Lord. He says, the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. And the interviewer says, what do you mean by that? And Bono says, well, at the center of all other religions besides Christianity, you have this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. But in the gospel, along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of our actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The universe viewer then asks, like, what kind of stuff? And he says, well, that's between me and God. 
But let me tell you, it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm in big trouble if karma's going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross. And because I know who I am, I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And then the interviewer marvels with a gasp. And he writes, the Son of God who takes the way of the sins of the world. Oh, the interviewer says, I wish I could believe that. You can say what you want about Bono, but he is standing in the way of the promise of freedom in Christ. Are you? Secondly, walk in the way of freedom in Christ. Look at verse 5. Paul says, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Again, the hope of righteousness before God. We're waiting for all of the benefits in their fullness of being righteous in Christ through trusting not in our own human achievement, but in the achievement of Christ. We are waiting for the day when we'll not only be free from the penalty, but we'll be free from the absolute presence of sin. And, and Paul gives three clauses that point to us what it means to walk in the freedom we have in Christ. First, he says, through the Spirit. Christians live life in the Spirit. Now, how does God give us the Spirit? He already told us back in Galatians 3. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you? What kind of miracles? The miracles of a changed life. See, so many people think, I can't save myself, I need Christ, but I can change myself. Not true. You can no more change yourself than you were able to save yourself. And too many believers don't believe that. And that's why Paul says it is through the Spirit. How do you experience the Spirit? Through repentance and faith. Paul says in Colossians 2, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Well, how do you receive Christ? You acknowledge your sin. The, the law exposes you as a mirror. The law exposes your helplessness. And so it leads you to repentance, not only of your sin of ungodliness, but your sin of religiosity. That you're actually trying to earn your salvation. And repenting of that, you choose to transfer your trust to Christ alone. As you receive Christ, I just explained it. By the way, if there's anybody here who hasn't done that, you need to do that. You need to personally acknowledge your sin and helplessness and put your hope and trust in Christ alone. But then Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus, so continue to walk in Him. What's that mean? How do you become a Christian? Repent of sin and helplessness and believe the gospel. How do you grow as a Christian? Repent of sin and godlessness or ungodliness and put your hope in the gospel afresh. Trust that there's nothing you could do that could diminish God's love for you. And there's nothing you could do that would make God love you any more than He already does because your hope is in Christ alone. We trust in the gospel as the unconditional love of God, and we trust in the gospel as the transforming power 
of the resurrected Christ. We walk in the Spirit by repentance and faith. Then the second clause, through the Spirit, by faith. How do, we, how do we receive the Spirit? How does God work miracles among us? Again, trusting the gospel promises. It's amazing how we so often change the rules of life. When it comes to conversion, we say, well, the rule is trust Christ. But when it comes to the Christian life, we so easily turn from the way of freedom in Christ to the way of performance, the way of human achievement. And Paul says, through the Spirit, by faith, And then the third clause, we wait or await the hope of righteousness. What did Abraham and Sarah do? They got tired of waiting. And we get tired of waiting too. I have people say all the time to me, Bob, the gospel doesn't work. What makes you say that? Well, I'm still struggling with the same stuff I struggled with before I was a Christian. Well, that doesn't mean the gospel doesn't work. That just means that's the way the Christian life works. We keep on admitting our helplessness. We keep on running to Christ. I run to the Father again and 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 again. again. That's what we do. That's the Christian life. The problem is you don't want to have to be desperately dependent on Christ's righteousness. That's the problem. You want to contribute your own. And you're frustrated because you don't have more righteousness to contribute. Paul tells us that when we hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we least feel we deserve to hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is when the power of the Holy Spirit falls upon us. Are you walking in the way of freedom in Christ? Now, walking in freedom is not casting off all restraint. You know, you know a guitar string? Can you imagine a guitar string if it had a life and it's disconnected from the bridge and the tuning uh, pegs? Ooh, I'm free, right? And this guitar string's just going around and around. Free to do what? Free to be an imbecile? I mean, you're useless. And, and too many people think that. See, there's not only legalism and gnomism, there's also antinomianism. Anti namas law, against the law, thinking that grace means because God loves you as you are, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what choices you make. It doesn't matter whether you're obedient or not. Of course that matters. Not matters because God's posture towards you is going to change. That's important, right? Your obedience isn't important because you're trying to make sure God doesn't do this. That's not why obedience is important. Obedience is important because it's the call to your highest pleasure. And warnings are important because they're warnings against your worst nightmare. And obedience is important because it's love. It's a love response to the God who loves the undeserving. Who who actually chose to love the unlovable. You know, it's so sad that so many Christians have made obedience into, you better do this. Wait a minute. Paul says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. See, what he's saying is if, if we truly are gripped by what God has done for us in Christ, supernaturally, transformations occur. The water, the circumcision, 
God has cut away the heart of stone, and he's given us a new heart, and he's given us the Holy Spirit, and we are now supernaturally enabled to love God in response. Obedience is a love response to God. It's not something you have to do to make sure he doesn't turn his back on you. You know what? So many Christians' obedience is self-worship. Why are you obeying? I don't want to get smacked. Okay, so your comfort is the reason you're obeying. That's pretty selfish. What if, what if I said that to Laurie? Why are you loving me? Well, because I know there'll be hell to pay if I don't. No. I love her. She loves me. It's a response in a love relationship. Walk in the way of freedom. Stand in the way of freedom. And then lastly and quickly, run in the way of freedom. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you? You were in this gospel thing. You were in the way of the promise, the way of freedom. What happened? You ever seen the 800-meter race? It's interesting. The 800-meter race, it's not really a sprint because it's a little bit too long. But it's not a jog in the park either. And the 800-meter race is two laps. In the first lap, you have to stay in your lane. But when you come to the start-finish line for the last lap, you're allowed to maneuver and jockey for position anywhere you want. You no longer have to stay in your lane. And when that happens, strategy enters in. And sometimes it's not kind strategy. Sometimes the people that are running the race want to box in the one who maybe is better than they are. And so they strategize. One person will run here, one person will run here, one person will run here, and this guy's on the edge because he wants the shortest route, and he has nowhere to go. That's what Paul's saying. How are you letting evil, your own flesh, legalists and nomists, or even antinomianists, how are you letting them box you in to keep you from running the race in the gospel. In verse 8, Paul says, this persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. It is, God isn't the one who cuts you off. God isn't the one who is constantly saying, you obey me or else. God is not the one who is constantly saying, you better choose the paradigm of human achievement and you better perform really well or I'm going to turn my back on you. What's the purpose of Christ if that's the case? And then Paul says, God's not like that in Christ. And then he warns us, a little leaven, verse 9, leavens the whole lump. Jesus talked about this in Mark 8 to the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's the leaven of the Pharisees? The way of human achievement. The way of performance. The way of thinking that God is a God of karma. That what you do is what you get. The gospel is what Jesus did is what you get. And so many will believe that when it comes to eternal life, but they lose it. Can I just say, I lose it. Maybe none of you here 
are tempted to shift from Christ to your own achievement. But I'm tempted every single day. I'm tempted with discouragement every single day because I never get it right. And I want to. Even out of love for God. And I still don't get it right. But then I get tired of needing to constantly rest in Christ. It's like, God, understand me here, folks. God, I'm tired of trusting Jesus. I just want to be better. You ever felt that? That's what Abraham felt. I'm tired of waiting for you. I just want the promise. Maybe it's up to me. And that's when people lose the gospel and lose the freedom of the gospel. So Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. Notice, Paul's confidence isn't in the Galatians. Paul's confidence isn't in you. Paul's confidence isn't in me. Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. In other words, Paul believes what he wrote in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. Paul believes what the author of the Hebrews says. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's not confident in us that we're going to get it right. He's confident in Jesus, that Jesus is going to get it right in us. And then for the one who's troubling you, verse 10, he will bear the penalty. In other words, God's not only going to do a work of grace in us, the perseverance of grace in the saints, but God's going to go after any false teaching that doesn't exalt Christ in the way of the promise. And he's shocking, shocking in how he says it. You people that are concerned about a little snip in the flesh pointing you to the way of achievement, go the whole way and just cut off the whole organ because I don't want you ever to be able to reproduce. That's what Paul's saying. I'm tired, he says, of legalism and gnomism being reproduced. Let's get rid of it. Just like Paul says in Galatians 4, cast out the slave woman and her son. And then he says, that if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? You see, the early Christians were persecuted by the Jews precisely because they were abandoning the way of human achievement. And Paul says in Galatians 6, May it never be that I boast in anything except the cross. The cross is humiliating to human pride. The cross removes it. You contribute nothing but failure. And only as we enter through the narrow gate of hope in Christ will we find the way. Paul is as passionate in this passage as Patrick Henry only ever dreamed of being. And the sight of the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, what he really meant was, you are free. Do you believe that? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for, for 
raising up the Apostle Paul, inspired by your Spirit, to write us these words. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, we pray today would be the day they see their sin and helplessness and they transfer their trust to Jesus. But Father, for those of us who know Christ, forgive us for how we've left the way of promise and have begun to get trapped in the way of human achievement. And oh God, might we sense your love for us because of what Christ has done. And then, Lord, others of us, maybe we've thought that grace means it doesn't matter how we live, and we're close to antinomianism. God, remind us that believing the gospel leads to supernatural change. Change us by the Spirit, through faith, as we eagerly await the fullness of our righteousness given to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Hear the benediction. The beautiful thing about the church is the preacher never gets the last word. God does. This is God's word to end our service. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Abba Father, and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always.